You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to His disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. So good to be back with you. It's good to see you. I had a wonderful few months, couple of months away. It was refreshing and renewing. It's also clarifying. And then I come back to a pretty challenging passage God's given us in His Word in the midst of some pretty challenging times in our nation. And so before we dive in this morning, I would like to ask you to join me in prayer for our time together. Father, we thank you for the gift that, that we have, the ability to gather with one another. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what is stirring around us in the world or in our lives, you promise us that you are faithful and you are with us. We thank you that you've given us your word to be a light to our, our way. You've given us your spirit and he opens our eyes to the truth. Sometimes that comes through conviction and piercing our souls. Sometimes that comes through great comfort when we don't feel like we have the energy to take another step. Lord, I pray for this morning. I pray for this message. I pray that I might speak faithfully, truthfully, and clearly. I pray for us as your people that you would continue to call us back to yourself, remind us who we are and why you've put us here and what our purpose is. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. You know, there's a story told about a logging community in the American frontier about 100 years ago. Um, Really prosperous, it grew really rapidly. You know, there's all of these pristine forests and just a seemingly endless supply of lumber. And so this community, it grew so fast that the people decided that they wanted to start a church. And so they called a pastor fresh out of seminary. Pastor was very excited to finally have his first church where he could go and preach. And he spent his first week in this community just wanting to get to know the people, wanting to get to know you know, what their lives were like. And so he asked to be shown around and they showed him around and they showed him around uh, where they were, were uh, 
cutting the wood and preparing the wood for the mill right down by the river. They're explaining the process that to get the logs ready to send down the middle of the river, they would actually burn a brand into the end of the log. So when the log got to the mill, the millers would know where to credit, what community to credit that log to. Pastor thought this is interesting, but he noticed while he was talking that some men were actually pulling logs out of the river and they were cutting the ends off of them and branding their own brand in. They were stealing the logs from those upstream. And I thought, you know, he's new, young, this is a problem. I got to deal with this in the pulpit. And so that Sunday he preached a sermon titled The Golden Rule. Afterwards, people said, wonderful sermon, pastor. I know you're fresh out of seminary, but that was, that was a real banger. Great job. Uh, we're so glad that God has called you here. He thought, ah, my message got across. And then he spent that week kind of looking at the river. And sure enough, they kept, they were still pulling the logs out of the river and, and cutting the ends off of them. And he thought, I guess I got to be a little more forceful. So the second week, he preached a really forceful sermon on the Eighth Commandment. He titled it, Thou Shalt Not Steal. Afterwards, the congregation came up to him. He said, great sermon, pastor. That was really powerful. That was so convicting. Were you convicted? I was so convicted by that sermon. I praise God that he brought you here. And he thought, okay, finally got through. But when you know it, that week, as he was watching the river, some of the people in his congregation, they were still pulling logs out, cutting the end off, putting the brand on. And so the following Sunday, he preached a sermon entitled, Thou Shalt Not Cut the Ends Off Thy Neighbor's Logs. <laughs> and that was the last sermon he ever preached in that community. Well, my break was wonderful, and it was refreshing. It's also really clarifying on some things. And I feel like I have to have, which for some of you might feel a thou shalt not cut the ends off your neighbor's log kind of sermon today. I have to say some hard things. 2020, collectively speaking, I think was the hardest year in memory. At least it was for me and my generation. And then 2021 started off with a bang with the events that happened at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Right now, 20,000 troops are stationed in Washington, D.C., maybe more, armed, sleeping on the floor in order to ensure the peaceful transition of power. Our country's on edge. Saw so a poll last week, 83% of Republicans and 78% of Democrats agree that America is falling apart. Two groups of people who can't seem to agree on anything anymore. The one thing they can agree upon is that our society is in a deep crisis. And this is a defining moment in the life of our country, but it's also a defining moment in the life of our church. Because the division, the anger, the hatred, it's not just out there in the world. It's in here. And over the last several years, I've felt the temperature rising. I've seen more and more. 
seen the fights, people leaving in anger, relationships being destroyed. Verse from Galatians keeps rattling around in my brain. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by one another. We need to do some soul searching. As God's people, we have to ask ourselves some fundamental questions. Like, who are we? What is the calling he's put on our lives? The overarching call he's put on our lives. Where have we strayed from that calling? And what does faithfulness to Jesus look like in this pivotal moment in history. Now, the text we're looking at this morning, it actually opens a door for us to explore some of these questions in a very forthright way. In chapter 23, the whole chapter, it's a very intense chapter. It's the longest, in it, Matthew recounts for us the, the longest most intense confrontation Jesus has with the Pharisees. Now, next week, we're going to look at the second part of this passage, the seven woes. We're going to get into the particular things, the particular charges. But this week, I want to stay at about 30,000 feet because I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. I don't want us to miss Jesus' main, his biggest central concern, his central charge against the Pharisees. Because there is this one thread that runs throughout it all, runs throughout the New Testament. And we see it in verses 2 and 3. When Matthew tells us, Jesus spoke, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. That means they they teach Moses' law. They teach the law, the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, so do and observe what they tell you, but do not do the works they do. For they preach but they don't practice. Says their, their teaching's not always bad, although it certainly was bad a lot of the time. But Jesus' big problem with them was their lives. And he'll go on six times in the, past, or in the chapter to call the Pharisees hypocrites. And hypocrites in the New Testament doesn't just mean someone who says one thing and then secretly does another. Hypocrite in the New Testament, the word translated hypocrite is actually the word for actor. It's someone who plays a part. Someone who puts on a show. And so in verse 5, Jesus speaking of the Pharisees, he says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Now, phylacteries were these little boxes, little leather boxes that they would put scripture, like basically memory verses in. You could think of it like that. And then they would tie them around their arm, around their head, around their chest. And it was this way originally of remembering to, to keep the law of God, to keep it near to you and to obey it. And it just got turned into one of these things that... You know, over time, it got supersized, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so everywhere you went, you'd be kind of wrapped in these things as a show of just how devoted you are to God. The fringes that Jesus reference, references here, it's very similar. And what he's saying is they walk around, and they look really, really religious. But then he continues. He says, but they love the place of honor at feasts. 
and they love the best seats in the synagogue. So when they go out on the town on Friday night, they want the best seat in the restaurant. And then when they show up to church on Saturday, they want the best seat in the synagogue. They love greetings in the marketplace, and they love being called rabbi by others. What Jesus is saying is these men, they appear to be very devoted to God, but that devotion was really a mean to a lot of worldly ends. Power, honor, influence, a seat at the table, getting to pull the strings, money, control. They were doing these things, but their hearts were really far from God. They were breaking the commandment of not taking the Lord's name in vain. I mean, they they were claiming his name. They were walking around. They were proclaiming, but their hearts were so far from him. Now, here's the kicker. They didn't even know it. The Pharisees didn't know that they were Pharisees. In their mind, they were the most secure people there were in the world when it came to their relationship with God. And they had all of the evidence and all of the trappings to back it up. One of the curious things about Matthew's gospel, when you really stop and think about it, is how much attention he actually devoted to the Pharisees. Because it's a lot, it's a ton. And Matthew, he spent decades compiling his gospel. He knew hundreds of stories. Like he knew miracles that we don't know and we won't know this side of eternity. He knew additional teachings that Jesus gave. And yet when he edited his gospel down and decided, okay, final form, what do I need to communicate about Jesus and about what he has done and who he is And what the kingdom of God is. He devotes a ton of attention to the Pharisees. Why? Well, we have to ask, why did Matthew write his gospel? Well, he wrote it to give a historical account of Jesus' life and ministry, of course. But it, it, it was that. It was a historical account, but it was more than that as well. He wrote his gospel for the early church and in turn for you and I. And he wrote his gospel as a tool for discipleship so that the Christians who lived 20, 30, 40 plus years after Jesus' ascension into heaven, they could read his gospel and they could know what a life of faithfulness to Jesus looks like. And so why include all of these stories about the Pharisees? It wasn't... It wasn't because Matthew wanted to stir up hatred or anti-Semitism by just dunking on the religious leaders of that day. Jesus told us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. No. He put so much focus on the Pharisees because he wanted to warn them and warn us of humanity's incredible capacity for self-deception. I mean, we all have a tremendous capacity for self-deception, do we not? Have you ever noticed you're never wrong in your own mind? 
When's the last time you walked into an argument and you're like, they're right, instantly? Ever noticed how long it takes to change your mind on anything? Now, we can deceive ourselves in so many ways. They actually, there's like brain science and studies that the more we revisit histories, the more we re-narrate them to make ourselves look continually better and better and others continually worse and worse. I mean, we have this huge capacity for self-deception, but then when you throw God or his word in, it can totally supercharge that self-deception because now you've got God on your side. Now you've got Bible verses that you can point to that can justify your position. And Matthew, he spent so much time warning us about the Pharisees. I mean, these guys, they were the closest anyone was to God as far as anyone on earth could see. And yet when God showed up at their door in the person of Jesus, they didn't even recognize him. Not only did they not recognize him, they hated him. And they wanted to put him to death. And I think baked into this, Matthew is saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out. If you're not careful, you'll become self-deceived just like they were. And self-deception usually leads and feeds self-righteousness. And when this cocktail of self-deception and self-righteousness takes root in the human heart, bad things happen. We take a posture of, I'm right, they're wrong. They must be stopped, silenced, neutralized at all costs. And does that sound familiar to anyone in our day? I mean, that seems to be the noise coming from both ends of the political spectrum. We're right, they're wrong. They must be silenced, neutralized, and stopped. Unfortunately, some of those same calls seem to be coming from Christians, some of them very prominent Christians. A lot of times when this stuff happens, I try to imagine myself as a Martian of sorts, just try to get out for a second and look and ask, what is happening right here? Earlier this week, I was talking with my good friend, Eric Johnson, who leads our lay counseling ministry, brilliant man. We're talking about all this stuff, how Christians are engaging with it all, drawing lines, taking sides, really looking at the trajectory of of where this is going and where it's headed. And Eric said something so simple yet so profound. He said, it seems like the American church has lost sight of the fact that Christianity is primarily about self-critique, not the judgment of others. It seems like American Christianity has lost sight of the fact that Christianity is primarily about self-critique, not judgment of others. Now we can go to Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. In the same measure you judge others, you will be judged. Take the plank out of your own eye before you remove the speck of sawdust from your neighbor's eye. I mean, that's really clear. But just think of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Jesus' longest 
most intense teaching on what it means to be a disciple of his. And pretty much the whole thing is about your heart, our hearts. Throughout the sermon, it's just one invitation to self-critique, self-examination after another. Anger. Are you angry? Don't act out of your anger. Money. Do you love money? Let's talk about that and talk about why and what that, that says about you and your understanding of God. Worry. Loving your enemies. Nowhere in the Sermon on the Mount does Jesus tell us that we, if we're going to obey him, we need to go and grab for power, demean our enemies, or even demean his enemies. He tells us we're supposed to love our enemies. And that's why I think for 2,000 years, the church has tried to find its way around the Sermon on the Mount because it's so hard. It's so hard. And yet it's not just there. Luke 18 Parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two men go up to pray. Pharisee, thank you, God, that I'm not like them or them or them or even this loser. Thank you that I'm devoted to you and that you've, you've rescued, that you chose me and you've rescued me. Meanwhile, the tax collector, who's viewed as the scum of the earth, just shows up. He can't even look to heaven. He beats his chest and he says, have mercy on me. A sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he went home justified. He did not. Christianity is primarily a religion about self critique, not judgment of others. That doesn't mean we don't need to discern. It doesn't mean we just swallow whatever anyone says or teaching whole. Don't hear me saying that. It doesn't mean that truth is relative. It just means that walking with Jesus means first and foremost. We are working on our own souls. And it's an interior work, and it's a work at the soul level. It's not a work of trying to control, judge, damn others. Now, the reason I think we don't do this is because it's so hard. It's so hard to regularly ask ourselves, am I living out of a place of trust in my Father's goodness? Am I trusting in his love and care? Or am I being ruled by anxiety and fear? Do I take my worries to God? Lay them at his feet? Or do I stew on them and act out of them? Am I walking in love towards those around me? Am I quick to listen? Am I being slow to speak? Am I being slow to become angry? It's hard work. It's always been hard work, but I think it's harder now than ever because we live in one of the most, if not the most, unreflective societies in human history. When we've got all this information and we don't know what to do with it. And so what we do, there's a cycle, I think. This is how I see it playing out. We take complex issues, we oversimplify them, and then we polarize people into one or two groups, and then we demonize each other. That's, I'm kind of falling into that, oversimplifying what's going on, but think about politics or the economy. Take an issue like immigration. As Christians, if you read the Bible, it's clear we should have a heart for the refugee. Now, we look at our society, our country, 
if the whole world wanted to live in America, I don't think we have the infrastructure to take care of the whole world. And so what does it look like? How should we vote and think about something like immigration? Well, it's complicated. But now it's been overly simplified. Are you for immigration or against it? Do you want to build a wall and keep them out? Or do you just want to let everyone in? Because that's how we talk. And then we take, that's one of, I don't know, a hundred issues. Do you care about the poor or would you like to see a lot of people have jobs and make money and our economy flourish? So often, can we have both? Because I think both would be awesome. I'd love both. But we take all of these issues and then someone, or over the years, these issues, they get divided into one or two groups. And the world tells us you got to pick. And then you demonize the other side. I so wish life were like the old cowboy movies. The good guys wore white hats and the bad guys wore black hats. If you don't have a great attention span, it makes watching the movies really easy. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Just look at the hat. And it seems like we're kind of engaging in that now, except for it's not white and black, it's red and blue or blue and red. We're tearing each other apart Instead of doing the work of self-examination, we demonize others and we have these filters. And then everything, what we do is we let the categories of this world set the rules of engagement for everything else. And so I think the appropriate Christian response to politics is to say, what does God's word say? What does obedience to Jesus look like? Here are the people I have to vote for. Which one do I think most fully advances this? And I'm going to vote my conscience. And I could recognize, because it's so complicated, some people can come to different conclusions, and we could still be brothers and sisters in Christ. Because the gospel is more important than whoever we've elected. That, I think, is a sensible Christian approach to politics. But we have gotten so swept up in it that now politics is starting to determine how we behave as the church. Give you an example. 2017, there was a white supremacist march in Charlottesville, Virginia. I stood behind this pulpit and I condemned white supremacy. I condemned the KKK. I condemned neo-Nazis. What I saw on TV was horrifying. It's like 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 years ago and it was happening again. And so I called sin, sin. Got an email that week. Oh, so you're going to condemn white supremacy. When are you going to condemn ISIS? Is that weird to anyone else? I will condemn ISIS right here, fully. Just so we know. How strange is that? What is that other than, well, we've been polarized, and if you're going to pick on these guys who tend to vote this way, then you should probably vote, I don't even know. I don't know a whole lot of people in America that are supportive of ISIS. It was so strange. But it happens all the time. 
in the midst of the racial tensions and uprising earlier this year, I thought, hey, we're a predominantly white church. It might be good for us to not just talk with one another and live in an echo chamber. Maybe we should listen to the voices of brothers and sisters who aren't white, particularly black and brown brothers and sisters. So I sat down with Sam, who leads us in worship every week, and people love Sam. Sat down with Pastor Mo. We just had a conversation. Tell me about your experiences. What do you see in this that I don't see and that we might not see? Because we're coming from different stories and backgrounds, and I want, you are my brother, and I want to learn from you. Afterwards, several people left the church. We were accused of becoming socialists. Because apparently, if you think listening to the voices of black and brown brothers and sisters in a, a church that is majority white, that means that you automatically support everything in the Black Lives Matter movement and all that it stands for. And you guys, I can give you dozens of examples. Dozens of examples. Nearly every week. I'll bring some from this week, next week to you. So shout across the bow, just so you know. Every week I feel like I need to thread a needle and the eye of the needle keeps getting smaller and the thread's turning into a rope. And there's no benefit of the doubt given by many. There's no ability to say, might this be true of me? Instead, it's like there's a whole subset of our church that's secretly listening for code words to know how I voted and how I'm secretly telling everyone else to vote. They're looking at how I talk and how I touch the pulpit. Is that, is that Morse code? And it's destroying the church. So I feel this pressure. Should I even address this thing? Is it worth or should I just water everything down until it's palpable to everyone? But that's called people-pleasing, and it's sinful. And I'm not going to do it. And I know some of you are thinking, just stick to the Bible, preacher. That's my goal. That's what I want to do. But when politics... And our country's obsession and our, the church's obsession with politics seeps into every sphere of life, every relationship, every social issue. Everything becomes a dividing line. Think about masks. How did masks become something we fight over in politics? Like, that's so strange. Epidemiologists should be duking these things out, not Republicans and Democrats. We spin everything up. Relationships get fractured. The unity we have in Christ, we're no longer walking in it. And even worse than all of that, I find that it, we lose sight of who we are as God's people, the mission he's put before us. And if I don't address these things, I'm failing in my calling. Now, I want to speak to a critique I've heard from members over the years. They say, it sure seems like Sojourn East, you pick on the right more than the left. And I would say, that's a fair critique. And I would also say that's intentional. 
because I am not a television personality. I'm a pastor of a local church. And our church is located in the east end of Louisville, and it is populated primarily, we're seeing this change over time, which gives me great joy, but primarily with white evangelicals. Now, I could be wrong, but through my conversations, I'm guessing that our church leans right. And I think my calling as a pastor to you I mean, the question I ask every week, how does this word speak particularly to Sojourn East? Now, if I was pastoring in Seattle, I would be preaching much different sermons, sermons that you all would probably love. <laughs> you, you, would, you would love them because that's the way we are. We don't like self-critique. We don't like self-examination. I'll tell you, as a preacher, it's so much easier to dunk on the sins out there, to demonize those way out there. That'll get you the amens. But when you speak against the sins, or even just the temptations, or those things that, that they're just, there's this undercurrent of them in your own midst, that's a lot harder to do, and it's not always enjoyable. But it's what I try to do because I want to faithfully serve you, because I don't want to tickle your ears. I want to see each of us formed into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. And sometimes I do a good job. Sometimes I leave much to be desired, but that's my goal. Now, that being said, last week, January 6th, Thousands upon thousands of people gathered at the Capitol. I don't know the hearts of everyone there. I don't pretend to know the hearts of everyone there. I do know that there was a decent number, and maybe a huge number, but at least a decent number of people there who were armed. Some of them were wearing body armor. They had flex cuffs. They beat police officers. We have it on video. They beat one police officer to death. And they built a gallows on the front of the U.S. Capitol. And they chanted, hang Mike Pence. Our vice president, who also, I believe, is a brother in Christ. It shouldn't be hard for us as Christians to say that's evil, wrong, and dangerous, and it's destabilizing to our democracy. I mean, when you, you look at the New Testament, and it talks about how we engage with politics. Paul's basically like, just pray that people aren't too crazy so that you can peaceably go about your life and live a dignified life, working with your hands, proclaiming the gospel. But there is this Christian nationalism, and I've seen it throughout the years. But I've never seen it rear its head this high above the water. There are Christian leaders declaring that we must rise up and fight to keep President Trump in office at all costs. Famous Christian author saying, 
this is the time to shed blood. We have pastors in our city during their worship services pronouncing curses on their political opponents. Go on the internet, LifeSite News, interviewing people who were a part, who actually broke into the Capitol. They basically said, we prayed to Jesus and asked Jesus that he would sanctify our work. And then we went in. This betrays the teachings of Jesus and it undermines the mission of the church. Over my break, I read a book by a French Christian philosopher, Jacques Ellul. Such a great name. The book was entitled The False Presence of the Kingdom. It was written in 1963. After World War II, there was a lot of turmoil in France, and Christians were involved. And Ellul kind of wrote this book, which is a very hard book to read, just so you know. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. But he wrote this book kind of offering some of his thoughts on how Christians should engage. 63, he wrote this. In that book, he writes, In the final analysis, every time the church has gotten into the political game, no matter what the matter, manner of her entry, she has been drawn every time into a betrayal, either of revealed truth or of the incarnate love. She has become involved every time in apostasy. When all is said and done, it seems as though politics is the church's worst problem. It is her constant temptation, the occasion of her greatest disasters and the trap continually set for her by the prince of this world. I love that temptation, the way he describes it. We're tempted to one, when we want political, we can either compromise on truth or, and we're not going to do that, what happens in more, quote-unquote, not politically, but it tends to overlap, conservative church, we're never going to compromise on truth, and we end up compromising on love. You know, I know a person who has, and they don't go to our church, so I'm not talking about you, but I might be, you know, indirectly. They have a Trump 2020, or a Jesus 2020 sign in the front of their house in their yard, and a Trump, Pence, a lot, of, a lot of signs in their yard. I was interacting with this person, and of course, you know, they have a neighbor two doors down with very different signs in their yard, and they were saying, I despise them. We used to be friends, but I can't even talk to them anymore. I hate them. And I think about that. You know, it's really hard to love, to, share, to serve, and to share the gospel with people you hate. It just doesn't work. But our mission as God's people is to go forth into all the world, proclaiming the gospel, teaching people to obey everything that Jesus has taught us, making disciples to baptize them and to see them raised up and to long and wait and hope for the kingdom of God to come in fullness. And so here's what I'm asking of us, of you. Are 
You might be feeling on your heels a bit. And listen, I don't know who you voted for, and I don't judge you for how you voted, unless you voted for Kanye. I think he just needs a few more years of ripening before he's ready. I don't judge you for how you voted. If you feel like I've misrepresented you in this sermon, here's the thing. I don't know your heart. And you feeling like I've misrepresented you, maybe you over-identify with some people. What I want to ask of us is that we would engage in some deep self-examination and self-critique. What's the purpose? Ask yourself, what is the purpose for which God placed me on this earth? What does obedience look like right now? Is politics the most important thing that I should be giving my time and heart and energy to? Because as important as our political system is, and it is important, and it's a mess, and there's a lot of work that has to be done there, it's not the most important thing. The kingdom of God has come and it's coming. Jesus has promised that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know where all of history is headed. We don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 years, but we know how it ends. And he has called us to live our lives in line with that end. And not only that, he's promised to be with us always, even until the end of the age. And I promise you, when you engage in real, deep, sustained self-critique, always leads to repentance. And repentance is turning from some things and turning to. And what are we to turn to? Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12, after indicting the Pharisees for their blindness and their hypocrisy, he goes on and he points to his disciples and he says, now for you, the greatest among you must be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He's like, you want to know how to be in the world? Humbly serve those around you. And you will find greatness. Love your neighbors, love your enemies. Live your life. It's almost like Jesus is saying, live your life like you value me above all else and you are dying for other people to know about me. And so you're willing to serve, you're willing to preach, you'll go proclaim, you'll help, you'll forgive. Live like I'm the most important thing. And that always means going low in service. You know, during my time away, I spent some time doing work on my own soul, and I'm convinced sometimes to go forward in life, you got to go backwards. And so I've been working through some of my family history and even extended family I didn't grow up in a a very religious family. Uh, We went to church Christmas and Easter kind of thing. But I did have a great aunt. I only met her a few times, Aunt Rowena. Um, And she was really nice, but she was always kind of weird. Everyone looked at her kind of like she was a little weird in the family. And she and her husband, Bob, they were missionaries in Pakistan. And I kind of just forgot about that for years. And I went back and I researched some records, wanted to learn a little bit about their life. And Rowena graduated from 
IU and got a degree in nursing. And I think 44, her husband, Bob, got a PhD in chemistry in 45. I mean, think about this. This is World War II is coming to an end. Like, think about the years that are coming in America. And there's certainly some bad parts, but there was a lot of good, a lot of growth, a lot of fun. And I think that's partially why my family thought they were so strange. Because in 1949, he's got a PhD, great job. She's a nurse. I mean, they are set, set for life. God calls them to go be missionaries to Pakistan. And they served as missionaries in Pakistan from 1949 until 1984, 35 years. And during those 35 years, in addition, in addition to serving as a chemistry professor and Bible teacher, my great uncle also served as a superintendent of a leprosy hospital. And he and his wife helped run and manage a school for orphaned girls. I mean, this is like... Greatest years in American life. All these years of growth. And they're in Pakistan with lepers and orphan girls. Moved back in 84. They were pretty young to move into a retirement village, but they saw that as their next mission field, they served there for 20 years. And I was reading my great aunt's obituary. And they said, Rowena's spirit is reflected in the mission statement she and Bob lived. How can we be of service? How can we help? How can we show up and embody the love of Jesus? Now, not all of us are called to move to Pakistan or serve lepers or build a home for orphan girls. But we are called to live with a fidelity to Jesus that if he did call us there, we would go. We are all certainly called to live with that same spirit. How can I serve? How can I love? How can I make Jesus look great? Because he is. And we can do this with boldness. We can do this with love. We can do this with confidence. Because we know that we belong to a better kingdom. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. We talk about self-examination, self-critique. Every week built into... Our liturgy is a time provided for us to do just that. The night of Jesus' betrayal, he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood that's been poured out for you. And he invites us as his disciples to take part in this meal, to remember who he is and what he has done for us. It's a time where we remember that we are not saved because of our righteousness. We're saved because of his righteousness. It's a time to remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but he has given us his spirit and he calls us to walk in faithfulness. So I pray for you, I pray for us. May we examine ourselves. May we turn from lesser things and may we seek to make Jesus look very, very beautiful in our individual lives and in our church. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.